and a very warm welcome to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale. The Posterity Podcast is brought to you by the Limerick Post, working in association with Limerick City Community Radio. Over the coming weeks and months, I will introduce you to a diverse range of voices from across many sectors in Limerick society. Some you'll know, others maybe not so much. I hope this podcast will capture the voices of those who see Limerick as home. I hope to get an understanding of what makes them tick and to discover their hopes and dreams for Limerick at a time when so much opportunity is in our grasp. The official definition of posterity relates to all future generations of people. These people of the future could be your children, your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, or any people born after you. So every decision we make today, be it by those in power, in business circles, or in community development, will affect the lives of those coming behind us. This podcast will tell people stories, capture their voices for posterity, and delve into the ideas, ambition, and hopes that they have as we prepare for and sow the seeds for the limerick of tomorrow. I hope you join me on this journey. I hope you enjoy listening to the stories you hear. And most of all, I hope some of what you hear will inspire you. Do get in contact with me if you have any suggestions for future guests, questions I might ask, or just general feedback on the show. So, I'm joined in studio today by a man who, at 25 years of age, has already made a name for himself in the world of startup enterprise. He first came to prominence in Limerick in in 2015 as an 18-year-old young man when the work he did to create a company called Tolov won him Limerick's Best Young Entrepreneur title. He then created another startup company called Trackworks in 2016 and was once again chosen as Limerick's Best Young Young Entrepreneur in 2017. In 2019, Trackworks was named the overall winner of the Intertrade Ireland Seed Corn Investor Readiness Competition, for which the company received a cash prize of €100,000. Originally from Chlorina, Chris Kelly has based his business and working life in Limerick City and was named this year as one of the Sunday Business Post's 30 under 30 ones to watch. Chris Kelly, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Nigel. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Chris, talk to me. I mean, you're 25 years of age and it kind of makes me a little bit sick to think that I'm introducing you already like this. But I want to go back to just listen and hear a little bit about your growing up. You grew up in Clarina. Mm-hmm. Where did you go to school? Yeah, so I went, uh, so I grew up in Ballybrown, as most people know, it's probably a rural village in in, uh, in Limerick. And I went to school in Ballybrown National School. And I suppose there was only one thing on the mind at the time, it was probably hurling. And that's, I think, for every, or hurling, soccer, football, whatever kind of a, a ball sport you can get your hands on. I think that's all that goes on in, in Valley Brown at an early, or as a young child, I suppose. Um, and then I went to secondary school in Crescent, um, which I think was a brilliant eye-opener for me. I think I learned an awful lot there about, you know, different things outside of sports, I suppose, if that makes sense. What were you like as a kid? Um... I think when I was young, I was super sporty. Like I, I just wanted to play sports. That was all I wanted to do. But I think uh, when I was in secondary school, then I think especially towards the end of secondary school, I became quite nerdy. I think I think definitely went into this whole like tech world of stuff that I kind of uncovered that I didn't even know existed. You know, um, were you academic? Um, 
I wouldn't have been bad at school, but I wouldn't have necessarily liked it or I wouldn't have been certainly someone that was studying. If, if there was a shortcut to take, I'd take it, if that kind of makes sense. You know, if, mm. if it was a, a question of learning the exam paper and what would probably come up for, I'd probably take that approach rather than, you know, going and actually studying every page in the book, if you get me. And when you were in primary school, before you got to Crescent, because we'll, we'll talk about Crescent in a minute, but when you were in um, primary school in Bally Brown, I mean, if someone had asked you, Chris, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you have said? I actually remember, remember this because my sixth class teacher asked me at the time and it was a structural engineer. That was what I had. A structural <laughs> engineer? Yeah, genuinely, that was what I in had sixth in mind. Class. In sixth class, yeah. I, did, I don't even think I knew what it meant, but <laughs> but it sounded cool. It was building bridges and stuff like that and I thought that sounded really cool and that was what I wanted to, to do. Do you think that you always had this sort of big vision mind? Like, were you always thinking big or, you know, were you, you, don't, you didn't seem, you don't seem to be someone who's afraid. Do you uh, know? I don't know about that. I think everyone is definitely afraid of things, but I, I think I enjoy making things definitely like I liked always you know were you a Lego man oh 100% yeah or like I remember a few of my friends we built a like playhouses out of like pallets I'd say and it was like three stories high um, into trees and tree houses all that kind of stuff so like would have always been quite like hands on and kind of making things and building things so like I think that was always the the kind of the inspiration or the fun for me it was always just kind of like what can we make and what can we you know what fun can we have doing this no you did you did I mean you're young enough to have grown up in the world where computer gaming and that sort of thing it's not probably you're maybe a bit beyond what they're all like now but but was that in your in your lingo you know that whole gaming um, computery then not particularly gaming Uh, no my business partners absolutely are complete gamers they love they love gaming but um, no gaming wasn't really my thing and I think it was um, luckily I think maybe to some degrees my my parents didn't let me have a, a PlayStation or Xbox I was about like 13 or 14 so it was kind of like when I got it it, it I was like oh, don't worry have any major interest in this because I haven't you know had it for that length of time so I uh, just never really clicked me I, I had one for probably I went through a phase I'm sure like everyone had that kind of like three or four month period but um no I, I would have more like making the computers and actually kind of clicking the understanding how they yeah, like get that, put that together side of it and <laughs> maybe like building weather stations and that kind of crack that would be more, more my kind of my cup of tea <laughs> just weirdly. your average yeah. young fellow building weather stations yeah um, talk to me about your parents and your family what what, what yeah. sort of background there absolutely so um, I my father was a soldier for 30 odd years and he's now went back into security and into part he's parts manager and he's done a couple of jobs since he's left the army as well but um, my mom originally was an engineer she went back to be an SNA um, so two very different roles, I suppose. Wow. Yeah, two very different different jobs, and then I suppose I have two one older sister and two younger brothers. So it's a, a big family, which is good. Was it a strict upbringing, or was it was it a, no. was it an open household? No, I like. I mean, de- like definitely, I think there was like. Um, Good principles. I think we we're, we're always put in place for it, especially my dad. My dad would always say, like, you should be able to shave with your creases and see your reflection, and uh, <laughs> and, and and see your reflection in your shoes. That was always, you know, the kind of the things that that uh, that he used to reinforce us. But but by no means wasn't think, regimented. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. we we're, we're definitely let fail an awful lot, which was great, you know, and to try things and to be competitive and to do all those things. I think from from an early age, I think it's great because you kind of learn that, you know, things don't work out unless you work hard at it or, you know, those kind of, I think that was one thing I was lucky growing up and through sports, a lot of stuff. And from an early age, we would be playing competitive sports probably from like nine, 10 onwards. And uh, like learning that if you don't train, you know, really hard, you're going to lose at the, at the weekend, you know, or you're not going to get good at it or you have to practice to get. So the discipline was yeah. there, but it was in, it, it wasn't. Yeah. But just kind of more into you. Made, mm. to make, made to make it your own idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sense, so yeah. when you got to Crescent, I mean, and then you were going into first year, I mean, 
But, so what, what was your experience of Crescent? Yeah, so I love my time at Crescent and, uh, you know, I think that we used to always get a lot of slagging for going to Crescent uh, from a lot of other schools and, and I suppose that was part of the Why? fun. Uh, to do, uh, probably mostly to rugby rivalry and things like that. Okay. But, uh, uh, but yes, we used to get an awful lot of, of slagging over that, but I love my time in Crescent. Um, you know, I think it was for me a school where I got to try so many things. So like I started off playing rugby, hurling, I think soccer in first year. And by like the time I was in fourth year, I was doing like TV shows, like the school drama, debating, uh, young scientist competitions, BTs, or not BTs, uh, young scientists, but CANSAC competitions and so on and so forth. So it was a real... Um, I, I had an experience. I was, I was in yeah. Christian Brothers School, but I ended up oh, having right, an experience yeah. with um, with the Jesuits in Dublin. I lived in a hall of residence, mm. but I often found when I met, I met boys from Clongos when I was yeah. in first year in college, mm. and they always struck me, that Jesuitical thing. They, they, had, they had strong handshakes. They were <laughs> incredibly confident to the point that I was really jealous of how these guys, they were sent to first year in college almost like men. And did you get that Jesuitical thing that was in even though there wouldn't be as many Jesuits left there. Yeah, but. yeah. I don't know, it was still like, I mean, uh, Father Jim Maher was, was still there, so there was definitely still a, 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 and there very much is still that Jesuit ethos as well. But um, but yeah, I think you're, you're, you're thrown out there, you're told to go do things, you know, whether it's, and it's, especially in TY, I think in Crescent it's brilliant. Like you, you're so many events, you're, get thrown up on stage in front of a couple hundred people and you have to speak and all these kind of things. And it's great because your, your boundaries are pushed and you're, you're forced to kind of try these things. And by the time, like I know, when we raised, when we did our first round of investment, I know I'm, I'm jumping forward, but, uh, you know, I think I had, even though I was only 18, I'd probably presented in front of so many different panels before because it was brought into us in school. So I think that was one of the few things that... I think um, it's a critical thing and it, yeah. it's wonderful to see it when you see schools that focus so much on th- how a person can present themselves. It's Absolutely. fundamentally yeah, important. Yeah. Oh, no, and 100%. And, you know, we, even if it was just something, I'll never forget, like, the first time I was made to, like, announce something at school announcement, there's 900 faces looking up at you and the legs are shaking and you're, like, from uh, the page is nearly, de- is, uh, nearly disintegrating from the sweat in your hands. And, you know, I think that the, those experiences, though, are great. They kind of... To push you through a little bit. <laughs> At what point in school did you start playing with the idea of creating business? Yeah, um, would you believe it didn't really start until towards the end. So I had a really good teacher, um, Anne O'Dea in, in Crescent, who was, I would always say, that the start of my kind of thinking towards engineering in general. That was It was always the first thing for me. Um, and I remember when I was in maybe third year, there was these a bunch of students that were maybe two years ahead of me had done this competition with the European Space Agency and they won the Irish Irish stage of the competition and they announced like to the school they were going to Norway to go launch a rocket with the European Space Agency with their <laughs> little piece of kit inside it. and I was just like I want to do that that sounds class you know how do, how do I get involved in that and uh, then two years later it came around it was our turn we could apply for it if we wanted to and Anne was the teacher that was actually running the program and you know said to her look okay, I'd love to do that and you had to go through the, the kind of interview process to kind of they, to pick out the few people that wanted to do it and um, and like it was literally everything for, the, the idea of the competition was to put a simulation of a satellite within a coke can so you like had all of the cons- the engineering constraints of the size of it but then you had to you know think about cooling it down you had to think about the mechanical design that it was structurally sound it wouldn't fall apart under the, the g-forces of the rocket and then you had to um, you had like missions within the project, if that makes sense, and you had to measure pressure, temperature, altitude as the primary mission. So if you didn't do that, you were out. If that makes sense, that yeah. was the, the bare minimum. Um, and then you had to, if you had secondary missions. So we had one where we were actually monitoring our parachute movements as we came down, and uh, I think we measured humidity and a few other things like that, and seeing how they changed based on altitude. 
And this um, is just in, this is in what year? In fifth year in school, yeah. So wow. it was brilliant. It was, that, that's what I mean. Like it was, and you know, that's one thing I've been very fortunate the whole way through my life with the opportunities. And I think that that's one thing that, you know, if I was to sum up my experience at Crescent in terms of what it did for me, it was, it was opportunities. Like you have to go and take them, absolutely. But there just is so many different random things that would come up in your time there. That but did you find as well go. that you met, like, was, it, was it meeting like mine? Because to, to me now, I mean, mm. I'm not an engineer, so that's maybe I'm just <laughs> thinking a little bit, I'm being daunted by this, yeah. but the, it, to me that sounds like a pretty forward um, thinking mm. project mm. for somebody who might be in fifth year. But I mean, I presume you're also meeting other minds who think oh, that way. And yeah, yeah. Did, did you come across people in school that, you know, you, you identified with in that yeah. regard? Oh, absolutely. And funnily enough, it wasn't just the engineering that made that project great. So like we had everything from like designing the parachute, which was like stitching something together to like me mechanically welding together and bending a piece of aluminium to get the whole thing to kind of stick together, whatever the, whatever the few different jobs were. But there was also like a public relations outreach presentations element to it that we had a guy in our team who would be the first one to admit if you've met him, Hugh Fitzgibbon, he'd tell you that you know, technology was not his thing, but he, but by God, by the end of the project, he was able to do full presentations on describing what we'd done in the electronics and presenting it. And um, anyway, I suppose we, we were a big bunch of misfits, the whole lot of us, there's no doubt about it. Like it was uh, the most random group coming together to do it. And you know, absolutely. And when you say misfits, misfits, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, do, would you have seen yourself as maybe a little bit outside the norm? Oh, I'm extremely strange, Nigel. You know that at this stage now, but like, <laughs> loads of people will tell you that. But did you uh, keep up sport and did you, you know, yeah. when you were in school or did you? I did until TY and I went through like a period of not training for, for maybe like five years and kind of just did other things and mm. business and life I suppose got in the way and I've only went back to it maybe in the last year or two it's been very important I think for the for a lot of reasons but yeah you were yeah. you were tweeting recently and I saw and it was really interesting to watch because I think it goes back to that possibility it was mm. you in Crescent standing in a field as a Defence Forces helicopter landed. <laughs> yeah, it was the same project, actually. Is, was yeah, it the yeah, same project? Yeah, was, yeah, Tell yeah, me yeah. how that came about, because, I mean, it yeah. must have been, you must have been flavour of the month inside in Crescent uh, to see yeah, that happen. Uh, to some people, anyways, we got in trouble over that one <laughs> in ways. But um, so, so I suppose we had a challenge within it that we had to do testing as part of the programme. So we had to test our can at a kilometre up in the air, but how we were going to get up to a kilometre, we had no idea. So some people had used drones and they'd gone up to like 200 metres or whatever the legal limit was, I couldn't remember. But I remember looking at the the test data and I was saying, right, this isn't going to get us to where we need to go. And I don't no idea how we're going to be able to test a kilometre because if you, you can't test it on the ground because like trees, mountains, all that get in the way. So like there's people were taking creative approaches where they were, um, you know, going up mountains and pointing the antenna up and all this. So we were thinking, we've we got to find a way of getting around this. And I, was I went home one day, I was giving out about it at home and dad goes, Sure, why don't I just ask them in the in the army if they give you the helicopter for the day? And I was just like, I mean, we just started laughing. We're like, there's no way that'll happen. He goes, we'll try to send an email tomorrow and we'll see. And uh, he's like, keep your phone on you tomorrow. So I did like literally go into every class, put the phone on the table, to, to tell every teacher why my phone table. We might be getting a helicopter. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. That. You know, and literally then got a call from. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Look, we'll t talk me through what you want to do. Talk him through the test. Went through like the radio specifications, make sure they wouldn't interfere with their equipment on board, and just talk about what frequencies we're using, that kind of stuff. And um, literally, then he he was like, oh, okay. Well, how would next Wednesday work for you? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Where do we need to meet you? You know, we'll come up to Baldonnell. We'll be there. And and he's like, ah, uh, have you got like a field in your school? And I was like. 
yeah, we've loads and we've, we're a rugby school, like we've <laughs> plenty of fields there, that's one thing we've got loads of. Ash, we'll just fly down, we've a training exercise on anyway, so we can just, we'll do it as part of the training exercise. And they literally just flew down, landed in school, picked up the box from us and, and flew and around to school off. for half an hour. Why did you get in trouble? Uh, because it was exams on oh. exactly the time that the helicopter decided to fly over the school at a really low altitude straight over the over the exam hall. So you can imagine some of our friends were very, very Lovely. happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you got through, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's it's lovely to hear that people are in schools are actually doing stuff at that level. It's it's really cool. But um, tell me about that first company you set up when you were yeah. eighteen years of age, and you know you're winning awards at that age. But tell me about the background mm-hmm. to the company. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when Talov wasn't that yeah, the name? Yeah, yeah. So we had been fortunate enough with the same project Cansat that we we went on like the crowd before us. We went to Norway as well to to do the European stage, which was great. And when I was there. When we were there for the week, the European the Space Agency put on like a, a kind of a mini conference. So like there was a series of present. So while the judges were deliberating or while they were doing analysis on a report, so whatever the case be, we'd have talks on just random things that were like happening in the European Space Agency, just to kind of let you know what they did. And I saw a talk on this uh, near infrared technology, and it was like talking about how they were putting on satellites, and that in like twenty or thirty years' time, they were going to be able to use this technology to measure crop health and that they could give this information to third world countries and all this and then, you know I was from Ballybrown I've seen you know fellas doing fertilizing all the time out and um, you know and, and I suppose that the, the challenges that come with farming it's not an easy business to be in by any means and I went back home and I saw this competition came up with uh, Mutex, a local software company they're based out in Castle Troy and uh, they previously were UB Works as well but um, they had us running a scholarship competition. They're like, you know, and you literally just had to enter a project. You didn't have to. There was no, which is great. There was no like constraints on what it did, but it just had to be something that was real world, and they had to. You had to prove it. So I went out and asked. Literally printed off a few surveys. Went out to the local farmers and said, "Look, what do you spend in fertilizer? Where is your problems?" And literally gathered some. Mar- I suppose market research. Market but it was research, very yeah. much as a, uh, It was very much less than that, but. Um, I found out like they were all spending like 10, 15 grand and the extent of the testing that people were doing was literally just putting a, a, a pH meter in the ground. That was probably the, the best form that they had at the time and kind of like colloquial knowledge of knowing that kind of, oh yeah, that field generally needs that, um, which didn't seem very scientific at least. So um, went back to the drawing board and I literally looked at this near infrared technology and turn it, you can actually do it to any camera. You don't even, like you literally just turn out, open a camera take out the blue blue light lens and basically put this little filter on instead and it turns into a near infrared camera so it's not quite wow. in the infrared it's not quite in the infrared uh, spectrum so you can actually pick it up with a regular camera so just did that with a regular camera and I thought then like if we could do this a drone it's way closer to the ground so you're going to get way better quality pictures and it just needs to be proof of concept so entered that into the competition and to be honest, that was kind of as far as I thought about it. It wasn't thought about as a business. It was more just thought about like, oh, I want to build a really cool piece of technology. And I thought, okay, I might be able to build a drone as part of this as well, which would be great. Um, so did that competition, got mentorship from Hemitex, Nico, was my, uh, Nico Parnas, Maradai out there. It was really good to me at the time and, and helped me out with, um, with like teaching me out engineering stuff that I'd never done before. If I hit a problem, he'd help me break it down. And uh, built that project then just with them, did some testing in, in the real world and, and looked at how, uh, how I suppose, how to analyze those fields and gave some feedback back to some of the farmers who kind of agreed to help me out with it. So they said that they'd, you know, they'd, they'd go along with the, the shenanigans for a few weeks and, and see what, what results we could give. 
And what we, we were able to show with the project was that it actually clearly showed that if they fertilize based on what the images were showing them, that they would be able to, to make about a 10% reduction per year in their fertilizer bill. And to be honest, I, I parked it there. That was probably the extent of how far it went. And when uh, Amy Tex offered me a job then for the summer, I was when I was finished my leaving start, I was like, great, I can't wait to get started now in an engineering team. And uh, there was a local uh, Ireland's Best Young Entrepreneur competition came up and it was just literally, you didn't have to have a company started. It was, you, there was an idea category. You could just have an idea of what you wanted to do. And uh, my boss actually brought me John to me. He's like, look, do you see that competition I saw in the paper there at the weekend? You should give that a go as well. And I was like, ah, look, I don't know. He goes, I'll tell you what, you can have a, a few hours during the week when you've got, because if it was quiet or whatever, he's like, you work away on, on an application for it and just throw something together for it. And he was so helpful with, you know, helping me get ready for the competition with practice pitches. And obviously he'd been through the, the I suppose, the rigmarole of it. And that was kind of the, the start of Talif, I suppose that's where it started and off anyways. So you won, well, you won Limerick's Best Entrepreneur, Young Entrepreneur mm. title with Talif. But tell yeah. me about, um, for those couple of years with Talif, I mean, you obviously, you mm. saved people money and it, it... Yeah, so there was... A, I suppose about what I always describe Talib in the big lesson. So Talib failed. Like I'm very, very comfortable saying that did didn't go anywhere. And the reason it didn't go anywhere was, was again because of the I suppose the, the mindset of where it started. It was purely just I'm going to build a cool thing that I like. But I didn't check to see whether it was like financially viable or whether it was going to be. So like it would cost me about four or five hundred euro by the time you get to everyone. Like an average, obviously some are cheaper than others, but if they're local. But by the time you get there, the time it takes to analyze the field to do all that. And by the time you'd save them four or five hundred euros, it, it was really wasn't. It wasn't saving. You might. You sorry. It would cost four or five hundred euros. You'd have to do that about four times per year. It cost about two grand to do it, and you probably save eighteen hundred to, to two thousand five hundred. It right. just didn't make any commercial sense for anyone. Um, but the task of actually creating something that worked and that could actually prove exactly. a point was something a learning for you. Well, yeah, hundred percent. Just yeah, the, yeah. the failure point, because mm -hmm. I mean, I think in in your business, failure is something people oh, yeah. have to yeah, come about, and you got that at you were eighteen. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. What's your approach to failure? I mean, what's your what was your learning from that? Yeah, like I found it quite hard. I think at the time because I think it was, you know, when you like, I suppose I was I was only eighteen at the time, and it had been, I I suppose it was I told everyone the world was going to be this big success. I suppose, and you're kind of sitting there going, yeah, it's going to be great. And everyone is agreeing with it, and then all of a sudden it doesn't work, and you're like, oh, that's it. that didn't actually going to work out as as I kind of expected. So I think it was a little bit. Did you ever get a sense um, of people's schadenfreude, you know, looking at you and saying, ah, he thinks he's so bright and, you know, there he was uh, winning awards and it didn't work or was it just maybe, on to the next thing? Maybe a little bit, yeah, I think, but I think it was, I was, I, d I definitely wanted to, like, I think it was because I loved making things, I was lucky that that was kind of what I wanted to do. Um, and I was, like, I suppose when I was in college then... Yeah, you went to the, the University of Limerick? Briefly, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I suppose after I finished <laughs> my uh, my internship at Emutex in September, then I started electronic computer engineering and I am coming back to your point of failure this is uh, I suppose linked to it all um, and went through all that and I suppose I'd started the business and it wasn't going well I could tell you know we were down in Carlo myself and Fionn my business partner and, and Owen had actually, I actually met them just as soon as I joined college they said they'd join in uh, you know on board with this idea as well and there was two other guys Owen Mulcahy um, sorry three other guys Rob Bordiano and, and Niall Hardyman there was, there was six, six of us involved in Talov and like just we were down in Carlo one day doing field surveys and I remember just looking at you and going, my God, this is, you know, this, and we were way behind on assignments. We hadn't nothing done for college because we hadn't been for the entire semester. Um, and I remember thinking, this is like, it's just not working. 
And you, I think admitting that was very hard because I was like, okay, I'll go back and focus on my college. But like, I hated college. At but the same you were also time. invested and, in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, I wasn't enjoying college either. So it was kind of like this really kind of, I wasn't sure what I wanted. But I think the fact that I knew I didn't like college and I did like what I was doing, you know, with Talib to some degrees, I was kind of like, okay, I want to go do that. So even though I, there was all the stuff about failing and not feeling great about that, I still wanted to go and. What was it about college it, that yeah. wasn't working for you? Um, I think I went in with this idea it was going to be far more creative, if that makes sense. I think it was very, I thought we were going to be just building things all the time and making really cool products and, you know, and learning by building something, if that can make sense. So like taking a project where you want to go build a studio, even if we look here, for example, like there's so much, there's so much stuff you can learn from doing that, like how to, how a microphone works, how does it, and I thought that's what we were going to be doing, build your own version of it and maybe improve some of it along the way, if that can make sense. But, but you were probably given a lot of books and time in yeah, library. Yeah, it mm. was very much like, uh, and I suppose it was principle-based learning, like you were learning how every component works instead of learning how like a system works, if that can make sense, which is, I mean, it has its place, absolutely. Like it, there's, there's no way in hell that you couldn't become a really talented engineer without going through those, those steps. But it was just, it wasn't for me. I think I wanted to go and... We were the sort of person yeah. who would open a car bonnet and look in and go, I can figure out how this works. Uh, some degree, some, maybe not cars, but, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of other things. Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely not a good car person, that's for sure. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm learning. I'm getting there with bits and pieces on it. But, but yeah, absolutely. That was... Uh, now, but in, when you were in college and, hmm. and with... And as you were saying, just after you'd arrived in, in UL, you'd met a couple of guys. Yeah, and yeah. tell me then how the road to Trackworks came about. Yeah, so um, so as I mentioned, there was, I met Fiona Owen, who are my now business partners as well. It was a few of us working at the time. And we met the, the I actually was involved in the the Midwest Makers Group down in, it's down opposite Dunn Museum uh, in, I can't remember the name of the building. Oh my gosh, my head's. There's a, a Fab Lab, sorry, there we go. The, the Fab Lab down opposite the Hunt Museum. And uh, Dave Hunt, actually in there, had, who I was working with in Emitex, had invited me along for a few meetups. And it was great. You went in, you just made stuff. Again, it was exactly what I wanted to be doing. Uh, made projects, and then you discussed the project, how you did it, and then everyone else did the same, and you'd learn from what other people had done. It was great, a great organization. And uh, one of the guys there, Dara Walsh, um, myself, Fiona Owen, had built an app literally called Pi. And this is the most nerdy, creepy thing you're ever going to hear. But we basically had, the idea was you'd be able to track your friends indoors or with a kind of a dating element to it. So that like, if you match with someone, you could then get guidance on how to meet up. But well, we didn't realize how creepy that whole prob problem was. But that was, the, that was the idea behind it anyway. So that was failure number two. And so I presented this app that we'd built. A Facebook for creeps. Exactly, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. For ner nerds for nerds, as we described it. But uh but we, uh, so yes, we built that app and I presented it to the Midwest Makers Group and Dara was like, yeah, look, man, I don't know if that's going to go anywhere on, on that side, but we've got a huge problem with tracking patients in the hospital. Is there any chance you want to meet my boss and take a look at that? And I was like, absolutely. And went out to the hospital and literally sat down with them, discussed the problem. And the challenge they had was that you either had to, to track their patients, they either had to write down the information on paper uh, and or else they had to install like readers like the same way you'd have in a shop for when someone walks out the door like RFID readers is that um, do you know when you walk out a shop and the, mm -hmm. the alarm goes off basically installed one of them in every door and it would record everyone so going in so that they know out. who's in the building at the time exactly and, yeah. uh, but the problem was they needed to know where, where everyone was who was in each room so they'd have to do it above every single door in the hospital so it was like I think they got a code like half a million or something like that wow. was, is what it would cost to do the full full premise with, with RFID so uh, we started chatting to them about that problem, how we could potentially help them. And what we actually looked at was using the existing Wi-Fi and using, again, similar algorithms, but not the same, but similar algor algorithms that we'd already used 
to be able to pinpoint someone's location in, inside in the building um, using just a wearable device and not having to install anything inside in the hospital. So we deployed that with them, did some clinical trials, and that was kind of how, I suppose, the, the whole And was it that simple? Off. You just knew yeah. where someone was at any one time and you could, if you logged into the system, or I presume exactly. you can log in. Yeah, can you, yeah, exactly, yeah. So like it was um, not just from a tracking perspective, but also then you could record the time that people were spending in each section of their care. So you could record wait times, you could record utilization rates, you could record the turnover times of theaters, how long it took to get out. And it wasn't for measuring anyone. It was purely just so when you're scheduling, you know, a day of operations, you know that, okay, right, we've had 10 patients in that were the same over the last, you know, six months of this data. And we can see that it should take this amount of time. So we can schedule that amount of time as opposed to scheduling, you know, a random amount of time. So it, it means that the, that the right amount of time is scheduled, not too much, not too little, because then you're not having under utilizations or runovers where, where basically people have to end up staying back late and overtime becomes an issue then and so on. But that and was that, the, that was the the idea. Yeah, yeah. And we launched that then into, uh, it was in the Bonds in Cork as well. Uh, it was in Liverpool Heart and Chest over in the UK. We we actually were just about to start with Liverpool Heart and Chest and then COVID hit. That was, uh, so we were literally just oh. getting to that that point where our, our third deployment, our third live deployment, I suppose we've done some other kind of pilots and stuff. But and just on that, I mean, while you yeah. mentioned COVID, I mean, it's it's interesting. You're you're we're talking now about you know people yeah. in queues and everything in hospitals. But I mean, COVID for that that two years, how did you find it as a as a company, and what what did yeah. you get up to? Yeah, so I, I mean, from from a personal perspective, I think like everyone, I think I found it very hard. I'm quite an extroverted person. I like to be out chatting to people. I I, I find that that part very hard. But we we went into contact tracing, so like. Our, as I said, our unique selling point before COVID was we didn't have to install anything in the hospital and hospitals love that, that we could come in, just walk around the building and then set up the system. But with COVID, when you turned to an infection control team and said, so all we have to do to set up the system is to walk around the hospital and walk into every room, they were like, you're the biggest COVID risk in this whole place right now. So not a hope because you'd be going from one room to the other. So it was kind of like, we'll do this in six months and COVID's over. And then as it went on, it was just kind of like, oh yeah, three more months, three more months. And it started off at two weeks. Yeah. And, you, and then I think there was no end in sight. So we were like, look, we can't just sit here and do nothing for about however long this is going to go on. So um, Owen, my business partner, actually redesigned the whole software in I think about eight weeks to, to do contact tracing. So it was to, from basically everyone in a building would wear a device and then we record the times people spent interacting with each other and um, and were they able to measure distance? And exactly. How, oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. How far away they were from each other. Uh, down to about, I think we had in the best, like the early version was probably like I think around two foot. But we by the end we had it down to about ten centimeters in terms of how accurate it could be. It was, and again, an awful lot of. It was probably five years of work on Wi-Fi, which is a similar bandwidth, not the same, but it's similar, and um, that was able to allow us to kind of be able to get those accuracies towards the end. Um, and that was, I suppose, how it started off. As I said to you before, we Apple TV were using it across Europe and. Uh, a few other TV series and chemical manufacturers and stuff like that. So it ended up being, you know, a turbulent year, definitely at the start, I suppose, our whole business but, overnight. What you're saying is, basically is yeah. that you were in the business of setting up the TrackWorks devices to work in hospitals, predominantly yeah. healthcare centers, yeah. that in order to allow you to be able to see how things are going, measure exactly. information, yeah, yeah. COVID hits, and you're saying that your business partner in eight weeks turned it around to create a device that could actually yeah. then, total new... Exactly. Yeah. So, like, I mean, the fundamental platform was always the same. same. So, like, the, the the cloud side of it was all the same. But all the device had to be the software. It was even a different technology. It was Bluetooth rather than Wi-Fi. So it had to, you know, it was entirely different stacks had to be built. The whole firmware was entirely overhauled. So everything on the device from a software perspective was totally different. But everything on the cloud, not everything. A lot of stuff in the cloud had changed too. But not. A, but the, I suppose that the core platform remained the same. If that makes sense. So we were lucky in that regards. We didn't have to rebuild everything. But 
but definitely there was uh, you know a, a serious. But you turned COVID into an advantage, and we're able yeah, to then say, yeah. "Well, look, you know, absolutely." And, it, and working in the film industry, working in yeah, it know, was a bizarre, it was a bizarre, bizarre year. I don't think I ever thought we'd end up working in film and TV when we're a healthcare company. I yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was mental. Um, absolutely, you know, it was a it was a mad year. Tell me about the process. Um, you know, listeners will be listening. Somebody who's you're 24 years of age. You've already set up two or three companies now if you're thinking like that but yeah. what's the process when you realise that it's a handy little gig you've, you've mm. set up something that's working mm. you've set up something that clearly people are willing to pay for and mm. you want to develop further and then you start to go in looking for seed funding and capital yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. how does that process work? Um, yeah. Do you go to them or do they come to you? It's also it's a it's it's some bit of a dark art to some degrees and I think that we <laughs> didn't know that the first time we did it that's for sure um, so like in, in the, it depends, I suppose, on what type of business you are and what your what kind of your funding requirements are. So you have to first of all identify, you know, who actually even invests in your in your space. Um, I suppose from our perspective and how we did it, we we started off going back to people that we we admired and we looked up to. So like the likes of Barry Lunn, uh, Pat Doyle would be another guy we would have we would have went to. So uh, these were I suppose entrepreneurs we looked at and said, look, these guys know they're they've been through it, they've done it, and I want to go speak to them and see what they think. So met Barry Lunn. Went through it for about two weeks with him and just, again, looking for advice, not for anything else. Went through it all with him, said, look, this is the business plan. This is what we're doing. This is the stages of it. And uh, once we had been through that with him, he was, you know, we're very, very fortunate. He actually said he'd invest straight away. But he's like, look, I've, I've been working with us for a few weeks anyways. And he's a really good guy for anyone that's that's looking in Limerick that wants to. Explain to people if, who might know Barry. Yeah. Barry is. So, so Barry Lund was the founder of Aralis, which was, uh, would have been a huge Limerick success. Uh, he moved on for it about four or five years ago, I think, something like that now, maybe, I don't know where, where whatabouts it was, um, and he's now set up Provisio, uh, uh, which is a company that does uh, radar detection for self-driving cars, of all things, and his previous company was doing um, communication chips for satellites for the European Space Agency and NASA and stuff like that, so he was a really cool guy for us, and we were actually based in the Nexus Innovation Center with him, so it was, he was only downstairs, so it was really handy, we could just get out and knock on the door and wreck his head more so than anything, I think, and, and get the, you know, the advice on on what we we're building and, and how to go about it, but he was he was really a big help for us. He um, and he then made introductions for us. Now that's generally how the investment scene goes. If you cold call an investor, they'll probably they, you know there's a good chance they'll come back to you. But really, to get to them, you have to get someone that they trust or that they know to say, "Look, you should take a look at this." And that's all it takes. Once you get in the door, then it's just a pitch. You know, I think that the the year of business plans is, is somewhat dead. And I wouldn't say it's dead, it, it comes later, but the start, people always think, you know, should I prepare a business plan? But the first thing is actually a deck. So it's a 10 slides that just describes what you do. And, you know, the plan, the business model, you know, I think there's a, the Sequoia have a 10 slide template that you just fill out. It's the problem solution. Um, geez, I'm going to test myself here now, but the, uh, <laughs> the product and, and so on and so forth. It goes through all your market size, market validation, all this, these kind of things. You fill that out. And then once you have those 10 slides together, you send that off to people and they'll take a look at it then and come back to you about whether they want to even meet you. You then go and present your slides. They'll give you a yes or a no. And then they start looking at your business plan. So it's, it's mad. You get your yes or your no before the business plan's even looked at. So it's, it's and then uh, and then they decide, well, look, we'd like to invest X amount or yeah. So they'll they'll actually tell you that after the after just seeing the pitch deck that they'll once they've seen the slides, they they then go into what they call due diligence. So they'll do all the the deep dive and make sure it's kind of like a. They're in, but they need to just make sure they're happy with everything, and they'll probably make some recommendations. So it's Dragon's Den for big boys, like oh, it, yeah. something. It's actually not a million miles off. Yeah, it. yeah it weirdly it. enough, it's not a, um, not a million miles away. It is the posterity podcast. This, and yeah. I mean, I'm you're a young guy, so therefore I'm not thinking of you popping your clogs in in, <laughs> in anytime soon. But certainly, from your perspective, from a posterity perspective. 
you're starting off, you're you're in a company that's doing well. You know, you've talked about Barry, you've mm. talked about other guys out in out in the out in the various yeah. places in UL. In order for Limerick to really succeed as a place for startups to stay, yeah. which is important, mm-hmm. to grow and to decide. I mean, we see the Collison brothers, what they've achieved. Of I course, mean, yeah. I often wonder, you know, if we'd only an infrastructure at the time for guys like that yeah. that might have stayed here. Imagine yeah. having headquarters. What do you think need, what are the things that need to be achieved locally here yeah. in order to mm-hmm. really stay as an attractive space for startup? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, look, I think we've talked about this you know, off air before as well. I, I think it's equality of opportunity, I think, is definitely something that's lacking in the city. I think definitely that, like, I was blessed growing up with the, with the amount of opportunities that I got for different things that I was able to, you know, I was blessed my parents supported me, blessed that I had you know, all these different opportunities that, with, with Cansat, with, um, you know, being encouraged to do all these things. And, I, like, there's no doubt that I came from a very privileged background. And I'm, I'm, you know, the first one to admit that. But, but having that and translating that across as many kids as you possibly can, I think is something that I'd love to see. I, I think that it's, even from, a, if you started with sports and just got, you know, people into more in sports, supported clubs, supported communities, and and then to support our own as well. Because like, if you get to a position where you've got all these people that, there's probably so much talent that we're missing that like I'd say that there's stuff that goes, and it's funny like this, uh, John Moran's program that he's running in in, in, CB, in CBS, Second Street, but, um, which the the end center and I love the idea that that like these these kids who maybe haven't and some of them who are come absolutely in every school there's people that are going to be from all different backgrounds but that the idea for me is that with those programs is that I'd love to see because. That's and the end center I mean, for listeners, the end center yeah. is an idea which is very simple. It's teaching kids about entrepreneurship in school and that the yeah. fact that, you know, if you're maybe you're not the most academic person, but you can, if you can take your hands and take an idea like Chris did, you know, you there's your education. Exactly. Yeah. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, that, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs will agree on this is that the, some of the best entrepreneurs are not the smartest people. They're not. And I think they'd be the first ones to tell you that. Like you look at, um, you know, they they definitely, but they they have an idea. They want to go and do something, and, and the best entrepreneurs hire the best people, and they can get the people. I think the best people, the people I would look up to the most, are people who built great teams around them, or were able to get great people around them. You don't have to be the world's greatest academic to do that. And sometimes I think that some of the greatest personalities are kids that maybe are not doing well in school. And that's my my argument against. I would say against education. Edu- education is really important, but against how it's being done right now. If that makes sense, I think that there is a lack of. I think a things, lot about yeah. you know, and I'm 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 living in a part of the city that probably would be seen as a regeneration area, mm. and I hate that word regeneration. But um, when I see some of those kids and some of the stuff they get up to is actually genius, oh, um, even yeah, though it annoys yeah. people. <laughs> but yeah. I often think if they were just allowed not to have the book or the the, the sort of structural education system forced on them yeah, and you yeah. were to identify that little nugget that they have yeah, yeah. from a very early age mm. you could just do wonders with these kids oh, instead, yeah. you know and I know there are programs in Limerick working on that but coming back on the the Limerick thing I mean certainly I get a sense at the moment that the livability of Limerick and, yeah. you know, the, the we're kind of still moving towards a suburban city, growing our suburbs and forgetting about the Absolutely. city. Yeah. And to me, would I be right in saying that for young, trendy entrepreneurs who want to mm. network and get together, urban centres are really where it has oh, to happen. Absolutely, yeah. Like, I've lived in the city now for three odd years, four odd years, and pre-COVID, I, I'll never forget being able to go into town, have a few drinks and walk home to your apartment and just, that, that it's it's bliss-like and you can walk to work the following following day or the following Monday, should I say, I don't, we don't ever do a night paper in the week, but, um, but you know what I mean? It's the, it's having that, that you can like that, that 
in your evenings you can spend it in the city or go up to people's park, kick football around, whatever the case may be. It's it's having, I suppose, a vibrant life there. But there's very limited options in the city right now. Like there's very little accommodation. There's a lack of apartments, I think, and, and a you know, I think that people are talking about the housing crisis, but I think a lot of that, you know, we're getting too political on this. I think that people could, a lot of that problem, those problems could be solved if there was more apartments available because, you know, kids and would be And as a young person, I mean, I often talk with people and I get told, oh no, people don't want to live in Limerick City because it's not for them. You know, it's actually mm. suburban. And I often question them and I said, the only reason you think that way is because there isn't anything for them at the moment. Yeah. And if yeah. there was, they would take it. Yeah. And overnight, yeah. the but city, the, the demographic of the city I would think change. That the weird one, and it was a really strange thing in COVID that really helped was the Three Bridges walk. I don't know if you saw that, like the amount of people that came back into the city over COVID because it was great for them. It was a rediscovery. They, and, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the amount of people that I saw that would never have left Raheen or never would have left Castle Troy and they were in the city every single night walking those four. What I found bridges. interesting about yeah. that was that not only did they start doing it, but the reason I think they did yeah. it was because there is a very limerick thing, which is once people start doing something that's Everyone seen as being yeah. trendy, <laughs> they all have to do it, um, which is really interesting. Now, yeah. can you imagine if suddenly little pop-up restaurants were happening and people were living up above shops and it became yeah, the trendy absolutely. thing to do yeah, yeah. we'd be flying mm. Chris what frightens you like what what freaks you out is there anything that like gets you stressed oh climate change 100% okay yeah big time and that I, I was so focused on work and never and building things and doing all stuff I never thought about the environment ever being honest and it's a terrible thing to say but like it, it's only been the last kind of two to three years like I knew it was an issue but I kind of thought oh the government will solve that or they'll get around to doing that and uh I think I started watching some documentaries and, and, and I was reading into it a bit more and I think, you know, obviously Seaspiracy, I watched that and, and saw, like, I think everyone talked about the volume of plastic in, in the oceans and things like that. That's what we've we've moved into now. Is It's all, our whole efforts have been guided towards that because I think that we're looking at it so wrong. Like, we're looking... This is, you're talking about your company? Yeah. So, oh, exp- talk to me about that. Yeah, so we've moved entirely now into tracking um, return of packaging for companies. So looking at companies who have pallets, cylinders, kegs, anything like that that's, you know, comes in return. Like, the, right now, even just starting with that, like, those companies have issues with, with tracking that. And we got asked by a company... Now, how do you track yeah. that? So we basically, <laughs> to... I suppose to explain how it came about, we were doing contact tracing for a company and one of the that company's customers saw the device and was like, so you're tracking everyone in the building with this, could you track cylinders first? We have a massive issue with cylinders. And uh, so we end up tracking cylinders for a company and it's basically the same thing, putting a tag on, onto the cylinder that just tracks it as it goes through. Um, it's lifespan. Exactly, yeah. And every time that it's delivered somewhere, it's, it's recorded, it's delivered there. And the idea is to try and help with a chain of custody. So knowing who has it, who is responsible for it, they must return it back then and then you can follow up with people because you know that they still have it or whatever the case may be. And it applies to kegs, pallets, cylinders, anything like that. And and, and this is anything that could possibly go astray. Exactly. And But fundamentally for us, when we started looking at it, the whole, the, the, I suppose the, the brainwave that clicked with us was, well, why isn't everything returnable? If you actually, when you think about it, like why is it not that you know, I actually was I was out for dinner with my girlfriend on Saturday, and it was they brought down a plastic bottle to the table. And I remember just looking, going, "Why in God's name is there a plastic bottle of sparkling water on the table when it could just be like you know something that, or at least in some form of return of packaging, like nine percent of plastic is that's ever made is recycled. People think, or is it, is ever used, even if it's recycled. So like the volume, of, so there's a ninety one percent chance 
when you buy a bottle in the shop that it's probably going to end up in the ocean, which is nothing to do with you. 91 percent. 91 percent. Not necessarily in the ocean. It could end up in landfill or it could end up somewhere else, but it's not, that it's not going to be recycled. That's nine, nine, only nine percent will ever be recycled. And that's a startling statistic of all plastic. Um, a slightly skewed statistic, though, because bo- plastic bottles are PET, which is a little bit more recyclable. But even still, of plastic as a whole, it's nine percent that ever gets recycled. And like companies are spending a trillion dollars in packaging. And like when we looked at the problem, it was like they're spending all this money on it. Then that money's all going down the drain. There's there's a better way of looking at it. So when we actually started looking at why aren't they doing reusables, and it turned out they did it for ages. If you look at milk bottles, you look at Coca Cola. It was all it all used to come in a glass bottle. The problem was they didn't get it back, so it became too expensive for them to do it that way, and it was just easier to just do it with plastic. So what we've, you, what we're using our tracking technology to do now is actually help people, help them to track it, find it, to get it back, to give incentives to customers to return the bottles back that they can actually and design reuse in from from the get go. If that kind of makes sense, but no, but that mean that a plastic bottle would have something in it that allows you to on the outside, yeah, a little sticker on the outside of the bottle that would just would, would track its bottle. Now it doesn't track its location actively, so it's only when you scan it that it records the location. It doesn't. So if you tap your phone off it, it records the location. Then it's not like it's it's not like it's so. If it's I was like to it, find a load of stuff yeah. in the Shannon tomorrow and we were saying this is a disgrace you yeah. could potentially be able to say well look this is actually coming from even better than that well we're, the way we're going to be able to, to do it is that uh, it'll be like a deposit return scheme so if you we'll actually be able to record that if you bring the, the bottle back you actually pay to bring it back to the to the company that that owns it because it's valuable to them so they you can tap the cylinder it'll tell you where to return it to and you wow. can take it back and then all of a sudden you've got people that are you know, it's, okay, you might have paid a euro of a deposit, and it might mean you might care about your euro, but I can guarantee you someone else will, and someone else will be more than happy to pick it up and you know return it back. And there's there's a, an actual incentive then for people to start thinking about it. And from our perspective, we were looking at it that if I say, say and I'll end on this, but if you bought a bottle of Coke and say for example you had to pay two euro to buy the reusable bottle the first time, and then it was just every time you brought it back you got your two euro back or you got another one, if that makes sense. You're never going to buy any other bottle of the drink because you've paid your two euro. You couldn't be bothered moving to their brand. So for the companies, it's they're commercially incentivized then to actually go in and look at this. They're not, all of a sudden, it's it's now in Nigel's best interest to go and return that Coke bottle. And they start building up data. They start learning what you like. They can start sending you special offers. And then from from it's a win-win for everyone that the, the Globe wins and so does the end user because they're getting cheaper offers, they're getting more personalized offers, and we can build the whole system around actually providing a, a better service that's better for the planet, if that makes it's sense. It's fascinating to listen to. And I mean, you're named, but Sunday Business Post thinks that you're one of the, the 30 under 30 <laughs> ones anyway, to watch. So yeah. we'll, we'll throw it out. But, you know, to finish on this for, for this podcast, you're 25, let's say, by the age of 30, <laughs> you're still a whipper um, at 30. But look, what's your real goal and ambition for the next five years? Yeah, oh, for, for the next five years, and, and you know, I was saying to you before, we've, we've really quietened down this year in terms of the push but we're publicly about what we were saying because we've just been so busy. We've honestly been just focusing on, you know, delivering our product out to customers, getting the, the first few customers up and running. Our, our goal is to start with return of packaging that's there. So within the next two years, we want to try and dominate those markets, try and be the, the number one company for that'll help you to optimize your logistics and your supply chain issues around return of packaging. That's our, our, our primary goal right now. But to use those learnings then to be able to let other companies take their products online. So to be the what we call the digital infrastructure. So to be all the little digital tools that you need, everything from deposit management to tracking systems to 
customer engagement pieces, data analytics, supply chain opt- optimization, and so on and so forth, to actually put all of those components in place for companies that if you want to move to return of packaging, you just need to click and stick, stick, stick a sticker on the bottle and everything else will be taken care of. That's the, that's the vision for what we want to do in the next five years. In, in five years' time, we would be our plan right now is that we would be in a position that we can we can actually start onboarding companies that have never done return of the packaging within five years. And that but for the next five years it's focusing on companies that already have that return of the packaging infrastructure there and you know using them as because they those guys know more about return of the packaging than anyone. Ironically, the gas industry is one of the biggest users of return of the packaging to the gas cylinders and there's a lot of learnings within that. I know that it's probably not the most environmentally Friendly, it's a source of fuel, but but even still, there's there's so much learnings you can get from from learning from that, you know. So there's can, ambition there for absolutely. the absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, and the final question: Limerick is where you're from. Absolutely. Limerick is yeah. where you've set up your first couple of companies, mm-hmm. and it's where you're continuing to grow. Do you see yourself for the for the time being staying? Yeah, absolutely. Like I mean, look, with, with my job, I'm going to have to travel anyways. It's it's kind of part of the job, and there will be times where. I'm sure there would be a couple of months after you spent in an, in another country or whatever the case may be, yeah, or, or just for a project or mm. whatever the case would be. And I think that that there's there's certain stuff that will, but absolutely, Limerick is home. Like that's that's always would be the case. Even if I have to go away for a, a short period of time to do something, it'll always Limerick will always be home. You know, and that's that's where we'll keep where we'll keep our business. We're a Limerick company. I'm very, very proud of that as well. So I don't think that'll be changing anytime soon. That's for sure. Great. Well, look, Chris, it's been really interesting. I mean, I've known you for a few years and it's only when you start chatting, you realize, wow, the stuff that you've done at 25 years of age is is pretty remarkable. Um, no, thank you for having me on. Congratulations to you. And look, I wish you all the very best and stay in Limerick. Oh, you we know, will, of course. Don't, don't, don't end up in the <laughs> Silicon Valley. You've been listening to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale, produced by the Limerick Post in association with Limerick City, Community Radio. Theme tune composed by David Blake and performed by the Brad Pitt Light Orchestra. If you want to get in touch with me or suggest any future guests, you can contact me directly on Twitter at Limerick City Biz or you can contact the Limerick Post at Limerick Post. Limerick Post.